just head up on the armrest. He's so sweet. <laughs> I had a fenced-in yard for them. I always feel bad about it. That's kind of why we went with a cat first. They're also, like, their life gets, like, four times harder with a dog. Like, I love my dogs, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. Traveling, terrible. Doing anything, terrible. Maggie just kind of screams when she's in the car. Oh, yeah. They're actually really good in, like, they like car Are rides. Are recording right now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure. But on our road trip back from California... We drove California to Florida. Mm -hmm. Maggie slept the entire time. Aww. There were a couple times where we had her in a, we had her in a harness so we could put a leash on her just for when anyone exited the car. Mm -hmm. But the one one or two times that that we let her out of the carrier in the car, she tried to dive right under the driver's seat. Oh my! Not the pedals, but the seat. So yeah. We're like no, 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 no. We're gonna put you back in there. We'll open it. We'll put you back in your little carrier because it's not a plastic one it's a soft one and mm -hmm. she had like a pillow in there that they gave us when we adopted her but yeah she didn't get sick in the car at all and she got to explore some hotel rooms that's good i traveled with my cat um one time to pennsylvania and back she did get lost on that trip so maybe that's not the most positive of stories oh my God. <laughs> we stopped at a restaurant she was one of those cats that liked to be walked on leashes so we had her in like a harness and a leash, but she was a very small cat. Did she get out of the harness? Yeah, cause like it wasn't, it didn't tighten at the shoulders. It just was like a mesh harness. And so she like scooted out and zipped. Oh, so uh, yeah, I think about, I miss her. Her name was Rhea. She was a good cat, but yeah. And that's why I have four cats now. <laughs> yeah. I told Curtis the nice cat we're getting is either an all black one or an orange one. Oh, orange ones are like they have like no a, brain cells. Yeah, but they also are very like unhealthy cats. I don't know why, but everyone that I know that has an orange maybe it's me. It could just be me and my small circle of friends. Everyone I know that has an orange cat, their cat has died tragically young, like two, like two or under, or their cat is like just really sick, like all the time. I don't know why. I think it's like. There might be something wrong with like the gene pool of orange cats. I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not a cat genealogist, but yeah, I know that's a thing that cats are like. I don't know. Orange cats are I'm like. Have to look into that. Yeah. But I just want a black cat and name them Lucky. Aww, that's cute. I have an all black cat. They're little voids. They're just like cute little voids. The void stares back. The void stares. Yeah. My cat has cat OCD. I took. <laughs> the first time I took him to the vet, the vet took one look at him and she was like, oh yeah, he's got OCD. And I was like, I don't know how you determined that so fast. Maybe he's staring at me as I'm eating my gummy bears. Yeah, he likes to stare. But it looks like both eyes are looking in different directions. Curtis called him a chameleon one time. He was like, that's not a dog, that's a chameleon. Yeah, it's because the eyes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's so mean. Only I'm allowed to bully my son. <laughs> okay, we call Maggie our problem child. <laughs> She is, but she's cute. Yeah, you she love has, them. She has many different nicknames. Her her name is Maggie, but I call her Magatha because Agatha Christie is my favorite novelist. Um, as a joke, Curtis calls her Magahat, <laughs> and my friend who knows I'm into forensics calls her Maggots. 
Mm-hmm. That's cute. I've called her Magnet a few times. Magnet? Yeah. <laughs> like, to her face, I'll just be like, Magnet. It's rare that she has a brain cell, because mm. sometimes she'll look at you really stupid, and she'll, she'll stare at you, and her mouth is just slightly ajar, <laughs> and she's just staring at you like... <laughs> she's, she's one of those TVs from the 90s where it's like waiting for the DVD logo to hit the corners to have a thought. <laughs> it's always sometimes just missing. You can tell there's a lot of thought behind those eyes sometimes. I love it. All right, let's get in. I'll pull up my notes and pretend that I'm a professional. Pretend being the keyword there. Wow. Roast me. I mean, I'm not a professional. Neither of us are. Flips hair. I'm on the wrong... Why every time I open my Google, I'm on the wrong stinking account? I hate it when that happens. Oh, and of course none of it is... Oh, I love it here. Wow. Oh, okay, I found it. I was like, this isn't even my most recently opened document up at the top, and it's because it had to, like, load. Anyway. Okay. (laughs) Real quick snack, real quick drink. (laughs) That's why I have gummy bears, because they don't make a lot of sound when you eat them. Mm -hmm. But I also have my alcoholic beverage next to me. I drink an Alki. I thought that was a Dr. Peppy. No. <laughs> Is that not a Dr. Pepper? It's a cider. Oh, shit. I, that looks just like a Dr. Pepper can from afar. Cider Boys, Raspberry Smash. I don't know how much we're allowed to say brand names on here. I mean, we're not sponsored, but they could sponsor us. I'm drinking Liquid Death. You know, that would be a great sponsor. Yeah. Murder your thirst. Murder on this podcast. I don't know. I'll, I'll make up a better slogan. I promise. <laughs> I'm good at this. I promise. Don't fire me. <laughs> I just get replaced by Gibby. <laughs> I'll just sit there barking, just stare at me. <laughs> just stare at you the whole time, yeah. Oh, he's, God, he's doing it again. <laughs> he's learning. He's absorbing your essence through your face. Like a Dementor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Anyway, okay. So today we're going to talk about digital forensics. Let's get digital. <laughs> da, da. That's a song. That's so I know that's a song. I've heard it before. I know. I was trying to think when it came out. The 90s, possibly. I wasn't born in the 90s. Child. Okay. I was born in 2000. I am a child. A fetus is among us. <laughs> okay, anyway. So digital forensic science focuses on the recovery and investigation of material found on digital devices relating to cyber crimes. See, I handle the scientific side. My sister is really good with cybersecurity. I'm going to leave her to the digital, so I don't know much about this, but I'm excited. Is she, is she in cybersecurity for her college major? Possibly. <laughs> okay. I feel like a really bad sister for not knowing that. I feel like I've asked her and I don't remember what she said. I'm so sorry, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So um, it also deals with the process of identifying, preserving, analyzing, and documenting all of the electronic evidence. I wrote these notes yesterday, so they're pretty fresh in my brain. But I would like to mention if I had written these several weeks ago when I was supposed to, I would not be able to decipher what the fuck I wrote. It's okay. I wrote, a, I did a lot of my school class notes at like 2 a.m. while I was working the hurricane uh-huh. on the breaks. So I really don't know if they make sense. I have yet to look back at them because I'm scared. I feel that. All right. So this branch of forensics was officially started in 1978 after the first computer crime, but it wasn't officially recognized until the 1990s as a 
more widely used okay. thing. Um, the Florida Computer Act was what came out of the 1978 computer crime case. Do I know anything about that? No, I didn't do research into it. But if you would like to tell me below what it's about, I'd be happy to listen to you yell at me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <Like a> howler. <laughs> yeah, and a howler. Um, it was originally called Computer... Oh my god, hold on, sorry. It was originally called Computer Forensics, and then it later changed to Digital Forensics after the development of technology has changed, obviously. Mm. Um, in today's society, almost all crimes have some digital footprint to them, so these forensic specialists can provide critical assistance to investigations in like a wide field of crime. Mm-hmm. Common cases that digital forensics are used for are data theft and network breaches, Online fraud and identity theft, violent crimes such as burglary, assaults, and murders, and white-collar crimes like embezzlement, corporate fraud, and extortion. That's kind of how they um, how they were able to identify partially who the guy, the suspect, or the yeah the suspect that's being charged with the murder in the Gilgo Giljo I don't know how to but the Gilgo Beach murders. I don't know what that is. We'll do a podcast on that later. Okay, save it for later. Okay, yeah, prob- probably. I'm going to say probably. They were able to figure out where he was based on triangulation of where he called from. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be digital forensics, yes. Um, digital forensics isn't just used as an afterthought to crimes, but it can also be used as a preventative measure by defining digital risk. So digital risk breaks down into four categories. Security risk, compliance risk, third-party risks, and identity risks. So security risks are acts that aim to access sensitive information to use for malicious purposes. So every time that it asks you 40 million times to put in your password, your password's incorrect, put it in again, no, it's wrong, forgot password, put it in again. Every time it asks you to do that, it's a security to help prevent security risk. And then, oh, sorry, you can probably hear that. <laughs> Compliance risks are risks to the organization by use of technology in a regulated environment. So failing to meet security standards, you know, those old, like now every website is like, you have to have one upper, one lowercase numbers, a special character. Before you could put whatever you want and make it a password. Now you have to have regulations. And if your company doesn't follow those regulations, they could have a compliance filed against them by the government. Okay. Um, The next is third party risks. So anything that uses outsourcing has the possibility of a third party security risk. So when you go to like a online store and then they ex- like take you to another portal to check out, they are using a third party vendor, which means that there is a security risk in your data being taken from that. I need to stop shopping online. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, um, like the biggest third party one is like shop.com, which I don't know if you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's like white and purple. That's the most I can tell you about it. But like they are like they have like really high security. But um, I was going to say it's actually funny because I got a letter in the mail the other day from who was it? Oh, right. It was my doctor. They had a security breach and they said that there were a bunch of files that were like copied off of their like patient hard drive. Yeah. So they were like. They might have taken your date of birth and your social security number and your name and also your medical history. Oh my god! And then, so I called them and I was like, what can I do about this? And they're like, not much. Because you really can't. Like, that's the thing. Like, you can't change... someone has that information. Yeah. Like, you can't change your social security number. You can't change your birthday. You can get a new license, but they still have all that other important information. So you just have to be, like, on the watch. My abuelita had multiple different birthdays at the hospital whenever she went... 
Oh, I have questions for them. <laughs> how? Wait, how did how did she have met? She didn't like people knowing her her real age yet. She oh. argued with her brother about who was older. Don't know why. <laughs> um, but yeah, she told everyone her birthday was August twenty third. But like every time she went to the doctor or the hospital because she was sick towards the end of her life, mm-hmm. she gave them a different birth year. Oh. Yeah, well, it wasn't until after she died we figured out, no, her birthday is not August 23rd, it's August 13th. Uh, oh, that's so interesting. And we still don't know if it's the correct year on her plaque where her ashes are. Does she have, like, her birth certificate? If I remember correctly, she has a different birth year on some of the, some of the birth certificates for her kids. For her. What? That's so weird. That's chaos. My dad... <laughs> Okay, so I believe that was my mom's mom. Okay. My dad noticed she had a basketball trophy from when she was like in middle school. He goes, what What year does that say? My abuelita took the tiny little trophy, went into another room, came back, and the year was scratched out. That's how far she went. What secrets does she have hidden? I don't know. I also am very curious. That's, um, I didn't learn this until my grandmother was basically like almost, you know, she was on the, the downslide, um, to put it nicely. But my, so my grandmother's lineage from her maiden last name is her dad and no one else. We don't know where her dad came from. We can't find much on my abuelita's history. Yeah. Ancestry.com, because after a certain point, it just stops. Yeah, exactly. That's the same thing. But, um, she's from Colombia, and she naturalized later in life, so she spent a lot of her life in Colombia, so we have no idea what's going on. All I know is that I still have family out there. That's so interesting. Because my grandma, so this is, there's two very interesting facts. So the first thing is that her dad immigrated here. He said from Poland. Okay, so he said he immigrated from Poland, and he was born in 1905. So in the, like, he immigrated as a child, so in the 1910s sometime, mm-hmm. and um, to New York, and then went to Pennsylvania. And then, um, he, they changed their name because they were Polish. And I'm hey, pretty sure my name changed at some point. We are getting very off topic. I'm so sorry. No, it's, yeah, no, it's fine. We're, this is, this is what they came for. <laughs> this is what they signed up for. Um, so they like changed their name and then, but there's no history of a name change in those history of the prior, what the name was. Like we don't know what the name was previously. Now, my grandmother also said that she was one quarter Native American because her dad was half Native American. Now, I need you to understand why that doesn't make sense if he immigrated from Poland. The second thing is that she was registered to a Cherokee reservation. My mom did a DNA test with me. I'm adopted, by the way, but just for the public (laughs) to understand, I am not, I am very Asian, I am adopted. But my mom did a DNA test. She has 0% Native American in her blood. But you know what? She does have 1% African-American. So I'm like, weird. And like my grandma always says she was... Where did it come from? I don't know. My grandma always says she was Polish, Italian, and German, I think. And maybe maybe French or British. They're kind of synonymous. But like like ethnically, they're synonymous. <laughs> not to, not to all, all of our British and French people just coming out in the comments. Like, absolutely not. Um... But yeah, but ethnically they're very synonymous. But um, that's what she said. And my mom is like not any... My, my grandmother, who full-heartedly believed that she's part Italian, is not Italian. Because my grandfather is like full-blown Italian. His parents came off the boat from Sicily type thing. 
my mom's 50% Italian, so she's only 50% Italian from his side of the family. And I'm like, that's so See, this interesting. is interesting, but our next episode... I'm doing it on forensic genetic genealogy. Oh, okay, yeah. We'll say we'll talk more about <laughs> yeah. our crazy lives after that. <laughs> okay, all right. I gotta put my passcode in again. No, Back okay. Back to digital forensics. Back to digital forensics. Okay, and then the last. Oh wait, I did do. Did I do the fourth one? I did do. Did I do? What was the fourth oh, one? Identity risk. Okay, no, I did not. Okay. Identity risk aims to steal credentials or taking over accounts of organizations. It's less about, like, the individual identity and more about people trying to hack in and be corporations, pretend to pose as corporations. Is that, like, how you get emails saying, like, oh, we're from Amazon, like, your account's been... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's, like, phishing and stuff like that. The Nigerian right. prince that wants you to send all of your money to him because he's in trouble. <laughs> it's... <laughs> but the Nigerian prince, in this case, is a corporation. <laughs> like, Amazon, Best Buy. My mom got one from, um... From Radio Shack. And I was like, Mom, Radio Shack's not even a business anymore, I'm pretty sure. They're closed uh-huh. down. I'm sorry, I'm saying in the least unlady... The least no. ladylike ways. It's fine. You gotta you gotta do what you gotta do, girl. Um, it is comfy. It is. All right. Uh, so okay. So then, digital forensics can be broken down into specific branches, such as computer forensics, mobile device forensics, network forensics, forensic data analysis, and database forensics. Drinking game. Take a drink every time I say the word forensics. No. <laughs> Considering it's a forensics podcast, we're not gonna. I would prefer our listeners to stay alive and not become a case we talk about. Live, laugh, liver failure. <laughs> Sorry, okay, don't listen to me. Don't listen to anything I say. Despite it being your episode. Yeah, despite it being my episode, don't listen to me. Okay, um, so computer forensics deals with the investigation of computers and digital storage devices. So any external hard drives or anything like that would also fall into that. It uses similar techniques to data recovery. What is that word? It says nut, but that is not the (laughs) word. It uses similar techniques to data recovery, but includes additional practices and guidelines that follow within a chain in command so it can hold up legally in court. Mobile device forensics deals primarily with recovering evidence from devices with internal memory. So those are things like your cell phones, PDAs. If anyone still use a PDA, drop me a PDA. I don't, I don't know. What's a PDA? Um, personal device assistant. It's like, it was like before cell phones were a cell phone is a PDA. Like, like a pager? Kind of. But you could do more. Like, a pager is just like, hello, I'm here. But, like, a PD... I'm so sorry to listen. I am am a fetus. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like a cell phone before a cell phone was a cell phone. Is that Riley snoring? I think so. You good, Sam? That was weird. (laughs) Scared me. I thought that was thunder. I thought it was a motorcycle. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Riley. what's What's that sound? Yeah. Um, tablets and GPS devices. So your GPS in your phone, your GPS in a car, your Fitbit, Apple Watch, anything like that um, would fall under Great. that. Apple knows my whole life. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting how, like, technology has changed and how easy it is to know anything about anybody now. Like, if I get this forensics job, um, I'll get to see that. Yeah. I hope you do. Thank you. Everybody, wish Olivia good luck in the comments. Okay. <laughs> um, and then... Thanks for forensic science specialist. <laughs> Hell Yeah. Um, and then network forensics deals with monitors, registers, and other network activities. So if, like, somebody's, uh, like, whole network of servers were to be compromised, then they would look into, like, 
the entirety of the network itself. Okay. Um, networks are difficult to deal with because they're highly dynamic, and once data is transmitted, it's oftentimes gone. Um, and network forensics is usually proactive versus reactive. Um, so they work on making it stronger security versus... That's good, because a lot of the criminal justice system, it, it has to be reactive. You can't make you can't make everything proactive. So right, yeah. That's why cybersecurity is so like interesting in that way. It's because it's... It it's runs, really interesting. It runs different, end. yes. Forensic data analysis focus on systems and databases used in financial crime to look to patterns to see if it's fraudulent activity. So all of your white-collar crimes that the billionaires get away with all the time, that would be... Don't get me started. I had to take a white-collar crime course in college, and it was so annoying the amount of people that get away with everything. Yeah, that's what they're... They're using those types to crack through it. Okay. And then lastly, database forensics investigates, investigates changes in the database itself. These are mostly used in fraud cases, but can also be used to validate and verify actions of the database users. So if there was some sort of whack activity going on like on like let's say like your phone got stolen and they were pretending to be you and then they used your credit cards that were linked to your apple pay to buy a bunch of stuff so they would use database to look at your phone and look at what your normal spending pattern is or what your normal activity would be and how it changes how the individual how the user which would be you has changed in behavior that's how like credit that card companies. So cool. That's how cre why credit card companies. If you buy something, you usually wouldn't, or a much higher purchase than normal. They'll be like, "Was this you? Was this well, fraud?" Like in a different side of the country. Yeah, and they'll be like, um, "Are you in Portugal right now?" <laughs> Honey, that's not country. That's continent. <laughs> no, Portugal is a country. What? I was saying on the other side of the country, and you said oh. Portugal. <laughs> I did say for I. I thought I heard you say in another country, so then I said Portugal. I said, I said with, on the other side of the country, since I went to college across the country. Oh, yeah. I, okay, I heard other country, not across the oh country. Anyway, language. Ling go listen to our linguistics episode. <laughs> okay. It'll be just before this one. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, so the steps of how the data collection goes with data forensics. So there are nine phases in the chain of command for digital forensics. So the first phase is first response. So those are the actions that happen immediately after a security event. And then this kind of, it's super vague because it depends on what happened. So that's whether it's tightening down the security, it's notifying the users, it's completely, you know, you're bringing in people to see what the heck is going on. Like, it kind of just depends on what's happening. Okay. Um, phase two is your search and seizure. So to find evidence, the team examines the crime's devices, investigators siege equipment, and um, make sure no further crimes can be committed. So that's locking everything down, taking networks off, um, making it uh, like unable for users to use the item so that okay. nothing else can happen. Um, phase three is evidence collection. So the step to gather data and evidence using forensic tools and procedures. Then phase four is securing the evidence. So data is verified to be accessible, accurate, and authenticated in a secure environment. Mm -hmm. Phase five is data acquisition. So electronically stored information is retrieved from digital assets through data acquisition. If this process is flawed, the validity of the evidence can be compromised by the core. So that's like the most important step. Is that like kind of like a chain of custody kind of issue? Yeah, it's, okay. it's that and it's like, the whole making sure warrants are in place, making Got sure, because if if you it's not admissible as soon as something's a little 
like incorrect if one thing is not on the warrant that it they find the it whole, knows the, the whole thing. thing yeah which is why digital forensics is so difficult yeah um the phase six is data analysis so examining identifying classifying separating and modeling data to turn raw data into usable and understandable information phase seven is evidence assessment investigators evaluate and electronically stored information in relation to the security incident after identifying the evidence this stage focuses directly connecting the information gathered in the case. Phase eight is documenting and reporting. A visible data record is created that helps to create the crime scene to review it. And that involves proper crime scene documentation, photographing, sketching, and crime scene mapping. Crime scene mapping, crime scene sketching, and oh, it's so detailed. <laughs> it gets annoying. I'm sure it does. Um, just how much like little tiny everything's you have mm -hmm. to do and then lastly is the expert witness testimony so forensic investigators will speak to the expert witness to confirm the evidence accuracy so some of the challenges that are faced in um digital forensics so right now the okay riley what you doing he's trying to get... oh he's trying to get off the couch okay don't lay on the floor yeah say so did you get hot yeah, they do. So the biggest challenge right now in digital forensics is the cloud environment. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. So for those non-techie people out there, um, I also did not know how the cloud works, so I'm going to lump myself in with those people. I will too. Um, the cloud basically is um, it's multiple servers that are in different locations that house small fragments of data. And so when you need a specific piece of data, it doesn't just come from the closest server. It can come from anywhere on the network. So basically, it's like if you were to take the information you need and look at it as a bunch of puzzle pieces put together, you could have a puzzle piece here. You could have a puzzle piece in Chicago. You could have a puzzle piece in Canada. You could have a puzzle oh, piece wow. anywhere in the world. And you need all of those puzzle pieces to come together to give you your information. And the cloud can do that very quickly. However, to trace back where all those puzzle pieces came from is virtually impossible, which is why digital forensics is difficult. And that's why it's more preventative than reactive. Um, I never thought about that. Yeah, I didn't know that's how it worked either until I did a lot of Googling. Um, and then also, because it can be located in so many different places, trying to get warrants and trying to get jurisdiction overrides is basically impossible. Oh, I understand that just doing 911 dispatching will sometimes run into jurisdiction issues yeah it's like on the border of the county right exactly so imagine mm -hmm. having to do that for every county every state every country oh like it would be impossible yeah it would be impossible so that's like the biggest issue now and i think that's a big way that like a lot of people who do white collar crimes get away with it is they use that to their advantage <laughs> what what you oh think he just wants a little attention i know i know you're abused you're so abused. <laughs> he's calling PETA right now for everybody wondering. <laughs> it's because he's not getting the pets he wanted while we're recording. Yeah, he's like, I want you to hold me and love me. All right, so some of the techniques that digital forensic investigators will use um, are based on creating copies of compromised devices and then using different techniques to examine the information. 
So they will inspect unallocated disk space, hidden folders for copies, encryptions, damages, or deleted files. So it's it's really interesting because they basically make a copy of your whole entire computer or device. That's why like they'll give it back to you at some point because they've made a copy of it. So they're gonna mess around with their copy and not with like the original type thing. Oh wow. Um, which is really interesting. And then so here's like some of the techniques. So the first is called reverse steganography. So cyber criminals use steganography to hide data within other digital files, messages, or data streams. So I don't know if you've ever seen like those puzzles before where it's like it looks like a picture, but then you zoom in and it's made up of like letters and numbers and stuff like that. Yes. That's what that is. And criminals will hide that, but you can't see that there's something there. So they will use the most famous, like, the first way that they did this with the computers, they took, like, a picture of the Mona Lisa, mm -hmm. and they had encrypted numbers within the Mona Lisa. And so the computer could read it, and anybody who knew the code could read it, but you didn't know that there was a code there to be read. So that's, like, how criminals get away with doing it, as they that's send it through. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really interesting that they can do that, like, at all. Like... I didn't think that was a thing you could do, but when you say it, it's like, that makes complete sense, but that, my mind is being blown right now. <laughs> yeah, and then so by doing that, they have to basically reverse it by checking to make sure that each file is what it is and doesn't have a hidden meaning underneath, which is incredibly long and tedious. I was about to say, that sounds like a ton of work. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, it's called data hashing when they go through it. And they have, like, programs and computers that can obviously run through it faster than humans can. Mm -hmm. But it's still, like, especially, like, most of these people that are committing crimes have thousands and thousands of files on their computer. It still takes yeah. quite a bit of time to go through. Um, the next one is called stochastic forensics. And that helps analyze and reconstruct digital activity that doesn't generate a digital artifact, which is what was in the last one. Okay. Which um, which use uses an unintended alteration of data that occurs due to the digital process. So um, I feel like I got to be taking notes on that. <laughs> so basically, they are they are it's basically the one before, but there's no numbers in the picture. It's just a picture, and you don't know that there's anything there because there's nothing left behind, but there's something under it. I don't know how to explain it better. Like than a picture that. is like overlaid on it. No, there's no, there's just no trace. It's there, and the computer knows. That's so weird. But humans don't know. I don't like that. I know, I know. It's it's very hard to explain. I'm probably doing a really bad job at it. But um, <laughs> so basically, what usually what usually is encrypted within innocuous things are text files. Yeah. And so these text files don't leave behind the artifact of being able to see that there's a text file there. Uh, so it's not visible to the naked eye. Right. But the computer knows that there's a text file, and if you know how to access to get the text file, okay. then the computer can still pull up the text file. But anyone looking for a text file could not find a text file. <sighs> it's like more steps, I guess. Um, and those are mostly used to investigate data breaches resulting from insider threats, and they may or may not leave behind those artifacts. Um, and then cross-drive analysis is also called anomaly de detection, and it helps find similarities um, as a control within the hard drive itself. And then it's cross-referenced cross across multiple devices to find, analyze, and preserve relevant information. So if there's multiple 
So there's multiple drivers that can be on a server. So right. if there's something wrong with a server, it looks at it looks at the baseline for those drivers and then sees if there's anything different about the pattern of how they've been running. And they can find out okay. from the differences if there's something wrong. Okay. I feel like I'm saying okay a lot. I apologize <laughs> for our listeners. It's okay. Um, and then live analysis occurs in the operating system while the device is running. It typically involves extracting volatile data in the RAM or the cache. So, um, yeah, if you've ever cleared your Google cache, they can still go find it. <laughs> Um, and then deleted file recovery, also known as data carving or file carving, involves searching a computer system and memory for fragments of files that were partially deleted in one location while leaving traces elsewhere on the inspected machine. So if you think that you can delete a file, absolutely no, you cannot. Nothing's completely gone. Yeah, there are still traces that are left behind and they will find them. Um, so yeah, tips for committing crime. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> don't commit no! crime. Don't commit crime. That's a joke. Don't commit crime. Please don't end up one of our cases. That yeah, that's gonna be rough. <laughs> that's rough, buddy. That's rough, buddy. Um, in modern times, we have digital forensic incident reports, which uh, falls under a cybersecurity field actually, and that merges digital forensics and the incident reports with crime. Um, these modern techniques help reduce the scope of attacks and return back to normal operations quickly. And so most of these are what we would consider the proactive defenses ahead of time. And so that's how they're able to kind of bounce back super fast. Um, but they, the main advantages of this are pro proactive defense, quick incident response, and consistent processing. So uh, hit, it, hit it before it happens, make sure it's consistent, and if something does happen, we're bouncing back quickly. Yeah. All right, so let's get into our case. I'm so excited to tell you about this. I know, because I, I, I study cases in my free time. Mm -hmm. That is my free time. And I've never heard of this one. It's a real it's a real interesting one. So let me take you to September 19, 2016 in Middleton, Ohio. 59-year-old Ross Compton woke in the middle of the night to a call from an alarm company about a loss of power to his house. Upon waking up, he realized that there was a fire that had started in his bedroom. He told the alarm company that there was a fire, and they told him to hang up and call 911. As you should. As you should if your house is... If, you <laughs> if your bedroom is on fire, you call 911. If you smell burning toast, you're having a stroke or overcooking your toast. <laughs> but if you see fire, please call 911. Please don't answer calls from your alarm company. <laughs> Um, so he calls 911. They dispatched the fire department. The fire department showed up to his residence in Compton to confirm with the police. He said that he woke up in the middle of the night to a call to find that his house was on fire. He hastily then collected his belongings, broke a window in his bedroom, threw his items out of the window, climbed out the window, and dragged his items from the ground around the house to the front where he met the police. Okay. All right, this is important. <laughs> the estimated fire damage was $400,000. His house was completely scorched. Oh, wow. Um, after the initial investigation, it was revealed that the fire did originate from, or sorry, it was revealed that the fire did not originate from the bedroom, but from multiple locations throughout the house. And there was residue traces of gasoline that led the investigators to believe that it was a planned arson. There were traces of gasoline on Compton's clothes and shoes as well when they took him in. So just from an evidence standpoint, that is highly suspicious. It ain't looking too good for him. No. 
Mr. Compton had an artificial heart that required an external pacemaker, which the police were granted a search warrant for the data on the pacemaker that included his heart rate and his cardiac rhythms. A cardiologist viewed the data on the pacemaker and claimed, quote, it was highly improbable Mr. Compton would be able to collect, pack, and remove the number of items from the house, exit the bedroom through a window, carrying many heavy items to the front of his residence during the short period of time he indicated due to his medical condition. And then, so Compton was arrested on felony arson charges, or felony charges of aggravated arson and insurance fraud. I was about to say, it had to be insurance fraud, too. Yeah. And then this sparked the interesting question within the legal system about what is a violation of privacy and where those barriers stand. Because they got the information from, from his pacemaker. Mm-hmm. So his he was charged with felony arson and insurance fraud. And then before his trial, his defense lawyer filed with the appellate court saying that them taking data from his pacemaker was a violation of his constitutional right for a legal search and seizure of his personal equipment and so they were trying to get it thrown out of court now compton never gave consent to release information protected by hipaa to the um to the police and was saying that his doctor saying that he had that condition was a breach of the patient doctor confidentiality Mm -hmm. now compton lawyers argue oh yeah that it violated his amendment and then his defense attorney filed to appeal with the 12th district court of appeals however he was arrested in 2016 he wasn't like he didn't start his trial process until 2019 that's when they appealed in 2019 what happened right after that covid so it got pushed back because of covid and the appellate court had to make a decision before the trial actually went to a judge Mm -hmm. and then what happened on march 2021 compton died of heart complications (gasps) while in jail so he died without any resolution to this case so there were no further rulings or judgment and no resolution if taking the data from his medical device constitutes as a violation of his amendment rights. But you would think they would at least go through and figure that out in the legal in a legal right. setting. So yeah. that way if it happens in the future. But they just dropped it? They just completely dropped. There's been no word from that court making a statement about it. And since he's dead, they have no reason to continue to make a statement. They didn't even decide, like, because even if they would have said, oh, we're still going to go through a trial, that would have at least... It would have given an answer on whether it was ethical or not. Right. Or legal or not. Right. But it it poses that question of, is taking data from a medical device legal? I don't know. I think it's a really hard question to answer. It is. There's a lot of ethics involved in it, especially with HIPAA that you brought up. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And then, like, I guess, like, They got a search warrant for the medical device, so they didn't break chain of custody in that sense. But the Mm -hmm. thing is, with medical devices, shouldn't your chain of custody include consent from patient and doctor now? Because we are bringing HIPAA into it. Yeah. It's such an interesting case, and, like, we don't know. And that... It concluded in March of 2021 when he passed. The court was notified it's it's interesting too because the court wasn't notified immediately when he passed it took them like two weeks to be notified and then they said okay well that's done and then they kind of just like 
that's and moved like on. That's something that really ought to be figured out. Yeah, you. Would, I would have thought that they would have at least tried to come up with some sort of answer for yeah. it. Yeah. They were just like, uh, well, we don't have to figure that out right away now. <laughs> Let's just wait for the next time this happens. Whenever that would be. Yeah, right? It's crazy. But that's, so that's the case of um, Ross Compton and the uh, digital forensics side of it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Let us know in the comments what you guys think. Is it something that should be done, or is it a HIPAA violation? Yeah, or is it totally free game because they got a warrant? Yeah, this is something I would love to. I would love to see our listeners' views on. Yeah, everyone's gonna have a different reason. Yeah, of what they think. And I also think since medical devices, like advanced medical devices, are fairly new. Yeah. Um, I, I would think this is something that they should really start discussing in academia yeah. um, to bring into like some kind of conclusion of to where to go. Because um, it's only going to, I guess, keep getting more advanced as it goes on. Might as well start now. Yeah, because like heart monitors, you have people that have glucose monitors. Like There's lots of different medical devices that take data. So, yeah. Let us know what you think about data and where where does it stop? Where does it end? <laughs> where did it come from? Where, where did, did it go? go? Where, where did, did it come, come from? from? Medical eye Joe. <laughs> <laughs> medical heart Joe. Medical heart Joe. <laughs> All right. Um, well, thank you. That was This was fun. This was very educational and fun. It was. So you guys are more than welcome to go to our Instagram page, Live, Laugh, Live, Remortis, where... We'll, we'll post some things. I have a mugshot of him, and um, there's probably a picture of his house somewhere on the internet. We can probably find headlines, but definitely head over to the Instagram. To check I just it noticed out. you tied a knot in the blanket. To yeah, I got, <laughs> I got a cape now. I'm unstoppable. Um, and if you have any questions or any input on this case and you don't have Instagram, you guys are more than welcome to send us an email at lllivermortis.com. At gmail.com. Sorry, Wait, when we get a website, can it be lllivermortis.com? <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening and tune in next week on Live, Laugh, Livermortis. Live